One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails and the latest episode of the Franco-Dutch War. My name is Zach and if this is your first time listening to us, I hope you'll stick around. In fact, I hope you'll stick around so long that you'll listen to the other 19 episodes that came before this 20th episode. Maybe you'll check us out on social media, follow us on Twitter at WDF Podcast, like the Facebook page under the same name or hey, check out the website WDFPodcast.com. Everyone else, thanks for joining us. And remember, just by listening to this podcast, you are helping the cause of this podcast. So thank you very much. If you want to do your extra little bit, make sure to be fit and tell people about it. If you want to do your extra, extra bit and have access to the extra feed, ah, how about that, it's all connected, then check out patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Patreon is by far the best way to support this podcast and I can't thank you guys enough for really injecting your own funds and your own drive into this podcast and helping it succeed. By doing so, you guys will instantly get some great audio goodies. Essentially, you'll get more of my voice, which, depending on how you feel about that, well, go over and check that out. Just see if anything there strikes your fancy. If it doesn't, then, well, just exit out of the page and go and do something else. But if it does, hey, maybe you'll pledge a small amount of money every month. For the price of a really expensive coffee every month, you too could be accessing more content. You could be a diplomat. You could be representing this podcast on the world podcast stage. Seriously, how expensive is coffee these days? I went, actually, this is a massive tangent, but I went to get a cappuccino, a large cappuccino. I was feeling in need of the four shots of coffee. Went into Costa Coffee. Now, I have worked in Costa Coffee for like about three and a half years, but I stopped working there because I got a new job. You all know this, etc., etc., Why am I telling you this? I don't know, but it reminded me how expensive coffee was. And I asked for a large cappuccino with caramel. Just large cappuccino with caramel. Perfectly reasonable. Perfectly rational. 480. 480, they say. 4 euro and 80 cent. I'm just handing you a fiver for something that I'm going to drink in the space of about half an hour. Probably less time because you haven't made it hot enough for my tastes. Now that might sound a bit ungrateful and a bit ridiculous. Maybe you all accept that coffee is this expensive, but... Come on, I nearly died, like. I suppose I was getting it so long for free, having worked there, that I forgot it was that expensive. But yeah, for the price of, well, for a little bit more, for $5 rather than €4.80, you guys can get access to a far better value deal. An hour of extra content every month, and access a whole week earlier to the episodes before they come out. With none of these silly stories about how much coffee costs or or what I've been doing with my life lately. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode, guys, and I hope you'll check out patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. You guys are all awesome, and obviously you're all super patient because you're still here, so thanks very much for keeping up with us. Alrighty, enjoy the episode. 
Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, the Franco-Dutch War episode 20. We're nearly there, guys. We've come a long way since we began our coverage in the midst of a returning king, a Franco-Spanish peace, and a cautiously optimistic republic. Events, of course, which characterised 1660 and the first episode of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Jeepers, how long ago was that? A very long time ago, but yeah. Since then, we've seen some of the sneakiest displays of diplomacy this side of podcasting. And we've also delved deeper into some incredible figures, some shocking and profoundly tragic incidents, and some defining moments. All the while, I've been privileged and honoured to bring this story to life and unwrap its significance to you guys. It's been a whole load of fun, and it's been amazing to see you guys talk about the era together, as though it was only yesterday, such as the importance of history podcasting, I feel, as well as, of course, to you guys for demanding such entertainment and making it all possible. Today we jump on from 1675, after the experiences that we examined last time, and examine another heady year of the Franco-Dutch War, 1676, which saw stalemate ensue on both sides, and a level of intransigence set in amongst the French. As Louis became determined to hold on to all that he had gained, and the Allies became convinced that only by rupturing the carefully crafted French defensive belt could peace be brought to bear on Europe. In the meantime, we will bid a tragic farewell to yet another warhorse. Yes, I'm sorry guys, someone else dies in this episode, and we'll witness the war spread to pastures new. Let's see how all involved got on, as I take you all to 1676. I do wish, from the bottom of my heart, that we might soon have a good peace, for I am as tired of this war as... If, by your leave, I had been stuffed with it by the spoonful, as the saying goes. Elizabeth Charlotte, wife of Philippe, Duke of Orléans, writing to a friend in the court of Hanover, May 1676. For the fifth year of the war, Louis would expand his forces to unprecedented levels, a total of 250,000 men by some counts, which was made possible only through the sheer will of his absolutist command and the immense talents of his administrators. Once again, the main thrust would consist of incursions into the Spanish Netherlands, while the further theatres between the Sambre and Meuse rivers, along the Rhine and Alsace, in the Pyrenees and Roussillon, and finally in Sicily, took the additional troops. Louis continued to see the Spanish Netherlands as the major front and would view the other theatres as distractions designed to reduce the amount of support Madrid could muster. It was thus in many senses an endurance test to see exactly how long the Spanish and their allies could hold out before the united fronts of the war became too much. Louis hoped to take advantage of any perceived weaknesses by acquiring further bases in the Spanish Netherlands, which he could hand to Vauban so that that engineering genius could form the fence of iron in his own expectations, reinforcing French security on its border with the Spanish Netherlands in the process. One could argue without much difficulty that the Spanish Netherlands was the mainstay of French attention, and maybe obsessions is the better term, 
throughout Louis's reign. If he wasn't trying to conjure up new ways to invade it, then he was busying his officials with schemes that would guard against it. The region was just too important for the French to ignore, and as a result French borders would advance tantalisingly close to their modern measurements, while comparatively little progress would be made elsewhere. For his part, a siege of the settlement of Bouchon was on the cards. This fortress town was located some ways south of the Meuse, between Valenciennes and Cambrai, which, again, you guys don't need to know the location of to really get the gist of the story, but for the record, Bouchon resided in Spanish Hainaut as part of the Spanish Netherlands, but Louis's success has obviously echoed through to the modern day, as the region, known mostly for its champagnes according to Google, is currently a commune in the Nord Department of France. So yes, it is now part of France. I always find it interesting to measure what fortresses remained in French hands and which ones were handed back to the Spanish after these wars. Maastricht is of course a good example of a fortress that gets handed back to and is now part of the Dutch Netherlands, but not all fortresses shared this story. Since being handed back to the Spanish generally meant that it would remain a part of the southern Netherlands and eventually Belgium, these military campaigns often had a great amount of significance attached to them. Since we have to bear in mind that the Spanish Netherlands didn't always mean modern-day Belgium, and since Louis's campaigns against fortresses and settlements outside of his domains would now be taken for granted as, well, French territory, you can perhaps begin to appreciate why Louis came to be known as the Sun King. The key point was that, even while he was plainly expanding French borders, he pushed them to the point that they were acceptable to the Allies, or the very least not as outrageous as some of the later rulers of France that would aim to subsume all neighbouring states. As Napoleon would find out, the powers of Europe could only be pushed so far. Yet, at this stage of his life, it would be wrong to present Louis as holding himself back from aggrandizement, and as the extra episode on his foreign policy assessed, his tendency to take more than was appropriate at the time and with very little grace hurt France in the end, but overall he was just restrained enough for peace to not be unpalatable to the Allies. It was of course a fine line, and Louis was immensely fortunate, as we've come to appreciate, to be surrounded by immensely capable men. Essentially, France was de facto ruled by a triumvirate for much of the period in three key administrative areas. Jean-Baptiste Colbert was the towering figure ensuring that the monies got to where they were needed, which essentially meant that he cut back other sectors of the budget enough to be able to spend as much as 90 million livres on the army in the early 1680s. Similarly, Louis did not orchestrate the administrative masterclass, which enabled French soldiers to consume as they marched by way of magazine storage in the various fortresses along their path. This was the work of François-Michel Letellier, but we know him as the Marquis de Louvois. Finally, and this is where this all relates to us, Sebastien Leprestre, in time styled as Marshal Vauban, would command the bulk of French strategy in a defensive sense, while he would also direct a key number of sieges against the French border towns, which are now considered purely French territory. So Vauban was in communication with Louis while the king marched, at the head of an army that is, to block William of Orange in his efforts to relieve the siege of Bouchon, to think back to what we were talking about earlier on before we got all distracted. For a time it appeared as though some serious moving material was about to be made, and that the King of France, Louis XIV, was about to do battle with the Captain General and Stadtholder of the Dutch Republic, William of Orange. 
It was a prospect which appeared immensely attractive to Louis XIV, though we can't have known how this royal director of sieges would have fared in his first pitched battle, because the scene for this film was unfortunately not to be. Under advice from Louvois, you see, who reminded Louis that he was there to protect his brother Philippe as he besieged Bouchon, not go gallivanting in search of a costly battle, Louis eventually relented with a surprisingly humble expression, saying, As you have more experience than me, I cede, but with regret. Later entries in his memoirs for the Dauphin would make it plain that Louis always regretted listening to his marshals in this case. While sieges could wrest a sense of glory out of the situation, this was comparatively nothing when you think of the glorious triumphs that could be wrested from the battlefield. The fact that he might lose and jeopardise the entire course of French operations for the year, of course, did not cross Louis' mind. Bouchon would fall to the French and would receive such formidable reinforcement under Vauban's orders that the fortress frustrated the Allies extensively during those heady days of the War of the Spanish Succession. It was in May of 1676 that Louis' brother Philippe, often referred to simply as Monsieur, successfully forced the capitulation of Bouchon. We know this thanks to the litany of letters sent across Europe by Monsieur's wife, Elizabeth Charlotte, if you'll remember, a daughter of the Elector of the Palatinate. Lizalot wrote to Frau von Harling, a childhood friend of hers who had married into the court of Hanover, and whose correspondence provided us with a series of incredibly quotable phrases, including that opening quote which declared that she was as full of the war as though someone had spoon-fed it to her. Lizalot wrote on the 30th of May 1676 that Monsieur has left for the army, where he has already made me suffer a thousand frights by exposing himself to terrible dangers, as I am told in letters from all sides, in Condé's two sieges and then in that of Bouchon. The last siege was started and, thanks be to God, brought to a speedy and successful conclusion by Monsieur himself. And now I have even more worried, for we are told that many people in the army are falling ill, and since Monsieur fatigues himself no less than the others, often staying on horseback for 24 hours and without going to sleep, I am afraid that he will end up getting sick too, for they say that the campaign will not be over soon, and that the king is not even thinking about returning. Oh, what a wearisome, wretched business. It is enough to make me forget all thoughts of rustling, and to bring on a disease of the spleen before my time. In the event, William would elect to besiege Maastricht in July, rather than seek a battle himself, but owing to the large swell in French armies, Louis was able to ensure that the gradual chipping away of the Spanish Netherlands continued with time to spare to force William back from his siege. Despite the intensity and duration of the conflict, it seemed as though France was by no means exhausted, and William wouldn't achieve many significant victories for the remainder of the year. On the other hand, he would be outmaneuvered with little consequence for the Dutch Republic, while the Rhine saw little action of consequence, save for the Duke of Lorraine, Charles V, seizing Philipsburg from the French in a daring siege in September 1676. Louis was evidently feeling the absence of the late Marshal Turenne, but Marshal Luxembourg was quite capable in his own right, and moved his troops down to the right bank of the Rhine in a region called the Breisgau, further down from Philipsburg, and followed this up by placing his troops in winter quarters in Alsace and Lorraine. The Rhine thus remained relatively static until 1677, with neither side apparently equipped to land any killer blow. 
The Pyrenees was another relatively quiet front, as 1676 seemed to be a year of relative inactivity as both sides consolidated their positions. Furthermore, Louis had elected to focus more men on the campaign in Sicily, where it was planned to capitalise on the revolt the Spanish were facing there. Although Louis seemed interested in making governing the region problematic for Madrid, and although men were landed there, Paris never committed enough men to actually hold on to the region. Sicily was not a war aim in Louis's mind, instead it was a pawn with which he could distract and drain the Spanish, as he seized the true prizes in the Spanish Netherlands. That's not to say that the French didn't take the theatre seriously in the Mediterranean, though. In fact, the region did host another terminally tragic event when on the 22nd of April 1676, the French and Dutch fleets met in the Battle of Augusta. On paper, the encounter was relatively inconsequential. Neither side lost any vessels, with neither side losing more than a few hundred men either. As ever in the circumstances of the era, sometimes the most trivial of battles hosted the most terrible of consequences. While orchestrating his Dutch vessels and Spanish allies on board his flagship, Admiral Michel de Reuter, yes, you know what's coming, was struck in the right leg with a stray cannonball, which brutally tore his limb off and caused a terribly disturbing scene for all on board. So long used to the presence of the Admiral as their kind of grandfatherly Admiral figure, since he was nearing 70 after all, de Reuter's wound shocked the Dutch into a retreat. A week later, after catastrophic blood loss, the great... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And glorious admiral died of his wounds. Just like that, it seemed, a relic from the Republic's finest hours had left the scene. By the end of summer, the Dutch had left the Mediterranean altogether, signalling perhaps their negative connotations towards the theatre, after it claimed their favourite sea dog. As it happened, de Reuter's death would prove to be the most noteworthy event of 1676. Louis contented himself with continuing the grind on the Spanish-Netherlands border regions, while William did not possess the numbers required to attack in force, especially after the failure at Maastricht and the absence of forage forced him back home. The Germans were gathering once more, but Philipsburg had been their major goal for the year, and with this taken, French strategy was somewhat compromised, or at least inconvenienced, 
but Louis was already instructing his marshals to locate alternative routes across the Rhine, which would soon bear fruit. To a degree then, 1676 can be seen as a year of successes for the French, and the frustration of William at Maastricht was in fact an anomaly in an era when the attacker generally had the advantage. Vauban, promoted to Major General at the beginning of the year, was tasked with inspecting the king's new possessions at the end of it, and remarked at the turn in the weather, calling it the vilest and coldest weather imaginable. Everything was ice-bound, and I came near to breaking my neck a score of times on the road. If this weather goes on, the king will get very little out of my work undertaken this winter, and I, for my part, will be glad enough to come through it without getting my nose and ears frostbitten. With the campaigns of 1676 somewhat uneventful, I feel it would be wise to examine some other issues ongoing in Europe, specifically in Britain, where a king had only relatively recently been forced into abandoning the war he had placed so much of his hopes upon. We would be underestimating Charles II somewhat if we noted his capitulation to Parliament and moved on, assuming him to have become irrelevant once he bowed out of the conflict. Yet, as Antonia Fraser provides us with a running analysis of Charles II's life in her biography of the man, we are provided with a valuable account both of Charles and of Britain itself. For his part, Charles remained convinced of the need to maintain the French friendship, and he insisted this to his advisers, in particular the rising star of the court, Thomas Osborne, the Earl of Danby, who had taken the reins from Arlington after the latter's fall from favour in late 1673. With Arlington gone, the cabal we've come to follow in Britain for the last decade or so began to break apart. By 1676, perhaps only Lauderdale in Scotland remained in his old vestiges of power, and as a firm friend of Thomas Osborne, hereafter referred to in this pod as Danby, both men seemed secured for success. In the event, to give you a feel for context, Danby was a statesman of the old school, and he would live until 1712, reaching the apogee of his influence here before falling out of favour and then providing a key basis of support for William III's claim on the throne in 1688, whereupon he rose to prominence yet again. I would of course be remiss if I didn't mention the other, perhaps underrated member of the cabal. If you remember an Anthony Ashley Cooper, also known as the Earl of Shaftesbury, who would come to have a monumental influence in the years going forward, and who will make significant appearances in our story in the next few episodes, and of course in the Long War as well. If you guys can remember the exclusion crisis and the glorious revolution that seemed to follow it, Ashley, the Earl of Shaftesbury, was an integral part of this process, and he's mostly credited today with founding what's considered the Whig Party of British politics. But we'll come back to him in the future. At this point, Danby himself was the de facto Prime Minister of Britain, just as Arlington had been, though of course that title was not yet in motion, with the role of Premier being viewed as too French to have an equivalent in London. Chancellor was often used, though this was often used interchangeably with Danby's designation as the First Minister, and sometimes even simply Favourite. In the absence of an actual legal title or job security, since the constitutional makeup of Britain was still developing, figures like Danby tended to hold power for a time before being pushed off due to some scandal or power play. The lack of security in their position explains why the cabal came to exist. Strength in numbers made up for the fact that the British governing apparatus was flying by the seat of its pants in this era. 
since Charles technically had the authority and power to lump his favour behind those he favoured most, and since the king's mood could wax and wane with the changing fortunes, it made sense to build up a power base independent of the king, but still politely reliant upon him. The most effective relationships were those that inferred a dependence upon the king, even while the king could deduce that his favourite had additional sources of support. A kind of unwritten rule, in other words, was for the newly minted chancellor to ensure that he was not politically weak, for he also needed to be able to push through the measures that his king wanted in Parliament, and to do this he needed friends amongst his peers. Failure to perform in the parliamentary sphere could lead to a fall from grace, as had been experienced by the Earl of Clarendon, when that statesman had seen his allies abandon him in droves, making him thus vulnerable to intrigues from the opposition, to which he eventually fell victim. Although Clarendon had been dead for nearly two years by the time Danby succeeded Arlington, his example remained fresh in any ambitious Englishman's mind. Danby, for his part, was certain of the importance of a rapprochement with the Dutch, since he believed a return to the principles of the Triple Alliance would ingratiate the king towards his troublesome parliament, which he had again prorogued in autumn of 1675. Charles, the MPs suspected, had been forced into making peace with the Dutch against his will, but he still schemed with Louis XIV against their express wishes. To Charles, this scheming with Louis remained necessary. He retained a large fleet after the recent war, which Parliament's pathetic grants would not pay for, and since he didn't want to lose this important military arm, among others on land, he planned a scheme with Louis whereby he committed to dissolve Parliament if they became too anti-French, in return for a French subsidy of roughly 100 grand a year. This would pay for Charles's beloved navy, but in Louis's mind it would also keep his cousin dependent on Paris and mindful of the French influence. The last thing Louis wanted was for the loud currents of anti-French opinion, which had played a large part in taking Britain out of the war, to lead London into an alliance with the Dutch and the popular William III. To prevent that eventuality, Louis seemed willing to give up much. In the end, Danby, through his contacts and negotiation, was able to secure the French subsidy even without fulfilling Louis' conditions. In other words, Parliament would remain turbulent, as if emboldened by its repeated proroguing. When it did return in early 1677, though, there would be one major development on its agenda, and that would be a Dutch marriage. For 1676, the resident MPs developed their cliques and divisions into coherent policy lines and distinct parties. Freed from parliamentary concerns, as the business of Parliament had been prorogued since late 1675, these MPs had more time to scheme together, and this period of 15 months would prove vital for the establishment of party identities and structures. When they returned to sit in early 1677, it was no longer adequate to allude simply to an opposition, nor was it accurate to single out figures such as the ailing Buckingham as the personification of that opposition. The cabal had split, but... British politics seemed to have moved on from its limitations, and would, in the space of another generation or so, come to reflect the party system we find easier to recognise, the court and country parties, otherwise known as the Tories and the Whigs. Charles, for his part, had not changed greatly from the man once imbued with the hopes of a nation a generation before, when he had arrived in Dover in 1660. In terms of appearance, Charles's black locks had first greyed and then by the early 1670s virtually disappeared. The film examining the life and career of the late De Reuter, Admiral, 
perhaps makes Charles out to be too wizened and old in appearance, even though Charles Dance does a good job in the role, since at this stage Charles was only really in his mid-forties. At the same time, though, the wrinkles in his forehead, the stress lines in his face, and the tiredness and disappointment in his eyes were all palpable if one looked hard enough. Portraits of Charles II from 1675 onwards display a man who seemed to have aged too quickly, though if one considers the intensely stressful nature of his youth and the tensions thereafter in his adult life, this trend is hardly surprising. Although Charles continued to have some public affairs, proving his lusting hadn't much declined, his old image had notably dimmed. As Antonia Fraser perceptively noted, the fact that many of the young citizens in the realm would not have known or remembered Charles as a younger man played a role in this change in how the king was seen. Though he retained a measure of his affability, his walks around St. James's Park became faster. He tended to fall asleep after dinner for fear of being engaged in to trying a political conversation, and he developed a new habit of producing a watch to indicate when his patience had run out. Danby was tasked with resuscitating the image of the court, though Charles would scarcely have admitted that much was needed to be done. As the quintessential leader of the government, Danby based his policy going forward on a number of principles. The first and most obvious one was to garner allegiance from his peers, so that success in Parliament would be made easier. This was done by the tactical application and pressure points of the use of important political arguments and, often in tandem, a light sprinkling of money. Through such methods, mainly just the sprinkling of money part, would the court party develop. Danby hoped to create several capable young men as the future of this grouping, while the old hands would offer the experience and stability to beat the opposition back. The second point Danby worked on was a solution which would enable him to put to practical use the anti-French bias of the nation, ideally by forming a Dutch agreement or an alliance. This Dutch agreement was made that much easier by William of Orange's feelers, sent out since late 1675, of the nature of an alliance with Mary, his first cousin and the daughter of James, Duke of York. James also factored into Danby's third point, since Danby was a staunch Protestant, and he essentially aimed to ride the wave of religious dissent by forcing through the anti-Catholic penal laws, which would affect priests and dissenters as much as it would affect that imaginary threat that the British people saw everywhere, the secret Catholics. Many MPs remained shaken by Charles's untimely attempts to pass the Declaration of Indulgences on the eve of war with the Dutch in 1672, and they cooperated with Danby to see French sympathy and popery as two peas in a pod. By applying some opportunistic weed killer to such peas, Danby hoped to capitalise on the public mood and thereby increase public satisfaction with Charles after what had been admittedly some difficult years, while he also followed suit out of his own beliefs regarding Catholics, not to mention the expectation that he could potentially build much of his power around such measures, particularly when the opposition country party tended to host some men of questionable religious persuasion, whom Danby could slightly accuse thus of questionable political motives. In Danby's mind, the best way to bring about the improvement in Anglo-Dutch relations was to bring about in turn an improvement in King-Parliament relations. In short, if Charles could get the money he needed from his MPs, he would feel less of a need to bind himself to Louis's promises of subsidies. Then it was a matter of turning this increased reliance of the King on Parliament into a positive message, which could in turn be used for political gain in the Dutch Republic.
added to the religious elements of this policy, Danby hoped that such measures would persuade the Dutch as much as the British people that Charles II had their best interests at heart, but tensions did remain high. Charles did appeal in person to Parliament in April 1675, a year after being forced to make peace. The topic as ever was Charles's beloved navy, which Danby promised would be the beneficiary of an improvement in relations with the Parliament, who had the power after all to authorise greater spending upon it. I must needs recommend to you the condition of the fleet, Charles began, which I am not able to put into that state it ought to be, and which will require so much time to repair and build, that I should be sorry to see this summer, and consequently a whole year, lost without providing for it. Yet Parliament remained intransigent despite Charles's pleas. Their biggest gripe remained the correct perception that Charles had not abandoned his dependence on France, nor had he ceased aiding Louis through the lending of soldiers to French service. Since Charles refused to offer a solution to the issue of Englishmen unpopularly serving in French armies, the MPs refused to grant Charles the money he wanted for the upkeep of the navy, and thus Charles felt forced to continue to rely on Louis for those monies. A standoff then ensued, because through their deliberate stubbornness it was believed, quite correctly as it turned out, that the MPs hoped for a total dissolution of the parliamentary system rather than a mere proroguing as had been done before. A dissolution, in comparison to a proroguing, would warrant fresh elections for Parliament, which the opposition believed would favour their position, considering the mood of the day. Ironically, while Charles bemoaned the idea that Parliament would be filled with yet more men opposed to his designs, he had secretly planned to dissolve Parliament himself, as we saw, should it become too anti-French and upset his cousin Louis. In the event, Danby's tact ensured that he both acquired these secret subsidies from Louis and that he prevented Parliament's dissolution. The February 1676 agreement with Louis provided Charles with annual subsidies and compelled the British king to maintain a pro-French stance for another three years. Though Charles got the monies he desired and he didn't have to replace his MPs, he still burned against them for their recalcitrance and had, by that point, prorogued Parliament either way in late 1675. In summary, although Danby had proven his worth, Charles had not done much to heal the rift between himself and his Parliament, while the months leading up to the return of Parliament were particularly stormy. When they sat again amidst a furor stoked by the likes of Ashley and Buckingham, the two former cabal members turned firm political allies, it seemed unlikely that Charles would be able to resist them again. In return for their demands, they would give Charles the monies for the navy, which he so desired. Their demands revolved around the latent anti-French feeling in the realm by early 1677, as the Dutch faced a further military onslaught from France. This anti-French feeling manifested itself into a policy of incredible significance. William of Orange's marriage proposal was receiving much attention from a number of prominent MPs, and determined to carry it forward to success was William Temple, architect of the Triple Alliance and a determined advocate of an anti-French policy. Upon him did the future political course of Britain, and perhaps even its royal succession, depend.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.